I did not train you to be a demon or a human. I showed you how to be an artist. To be an artist is to do one thing only. An artist gives all they have to the art. Your strengths and deficiencies, your loves and shames. Perhaps the people you collected. There may be a demon in you, but there is more. If you do not invite the whole, the demon takes two chairs, and your art will suffer. Then what do I do? Each morning, start a fire. And begin. Again, again. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. So this episode is a little bit different from the usual format. Uh, What happened was Justin and I invited uh, our friend Jake Given on. Some of you, I'm sure, will know Jake already. Um, The idea was that we'd each bring a a short audio clip, um, no more than five minutes, We'd bring that in, uh, play it, talk about it, and kind of just see what comes up. And some interesting things did come up. So it it was a a fruitful experiment and something we'll probably try a bit more in the future. I'm not really sure what to call it yet. I was kind of toying around with three of wands, but that just sounded a little bit too phallic. Uh, So I'm going to go with three of swords because it's equally phallic, but sounds cooler. In a few weeks, on February 9th and 10th at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, Homebrewed Christianity and the Center for Open and Relational Theology are having a two-day event called God After Deconstruction that is, as you might anticipate, hosted by Thomas Ord and Trip Fuller. Also in conversation there will be Catherine Keller, John Tatamino, Bruce Epperly, and Alexis Lilly. Uh, Justin and I will be there, handing out free enamel God is Dead pins. If you're wondering what uh, God After Deconstruction is all about, we actually spoke with Tom and Tripp the other day about that. So look for that episode to drop probably sometime this week. If you're at all interested in coming and hanging out with us, There will be an Eventbrite link in the show notes. Follow the link, and um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you there. All right, I think that covers everything. Uh, Enjoy. Peace. All right. Jake, it's good to see you, man. Welcome back to... um, I don't know, the scene? You're a scene kid again. Yeah, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like, you know? Um, feels, feels good to be back, um, I guess. Um, I saw that you're you're going to pursue your PhD after all, yeah? Yeah, and I never really stopped exactly. Uh, I guess I guess to give some background to any to listeners, um, I used to... Um, 
be a full-time PhD student. Now I'm a part-time PhD student. Uh, COVID messed a lot of stuff up and I had to step away and work in uh, industry for a little while. Uh Um, I also used to run uh, a podcast that went for a while and that was tons of fun. That was a great great podcast. Thank you. Uh, I was fishing for that compliment and you gave it to me. So I appreciate that. We're we're generous around here. (laughs) As much as I was a fan of your main podcast, which was great. I was a huge fan of your weird cryptid podcast. That you oh, that's right. I forgot about that one. So oh, much yeah. fun. That was that was a fun little side project. Uh, so I don't want anybody to go thinking I have a lot of academic work out there on, on cryptids because I just don't. But, uh, you know, we were involved with a, um, a non-academic network. It was Cinepunks, which is very much like a like a movie kind of horror scene. And uh, yeah, we... <laughs> We just did a couple episodes, just very casual research. Like, I, I hesitate to even call it research. We just like kind of had discussions about like these really interesting, weird things that get some coverage, but don't really um, aren't really ever entertained that much, except for in really eccentric circles. So, you know, we mm-hmm. were our own little eccentric circle for a little bit. It was kind of fun. Did y'all ever cover, cover the squonk? I can't remember. No, but uh, I know what it is. <laughs> or no, maybe we did. I can't remember. That's the one that cries a lot, right? Yeah, it's just like this like weird little like like blob of fat in Pennsylvania. What'd you call me? <laughs> and, it, and it just like you encounter it in the woods and it just sort of like sits on the side and just cries for a while. Oh, this is like off. my favorite sad, creepy little thing in the world. Yeah. What's it's it called? Awesome. Squonk? Yeah, yeah, it's the squonk. That's funny. <laughs> A sad blob of fat. I I really. I really <laughs> I, it's the, I, I, it's I the official like like patron like cryptid of of depressives. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's amazing. So anyway, yeah. Thanks for agreeing to um uh, to do this. We were just kicking this idea around, and then we figured, hey, let's ask Jake. I know you like to say no a lot, but once in a while, you know, you roll the dice enough times. You know, I. I'm hoping to be able to say yes to this kind of stuff more often now. Uh, I know, Justin, we've been talking on and off for a little bit about another potential episode for this podcast with Kripal, which kind of bridges those two interests. Like, I, oh, very we, cool. We were talking before um, the show just about how I like to keep my sort of, you know, ghost hunter entertainment stuff over there on the travel channel. And I like to keep my academic stuff over here. And I kind of have generally viewed them as kind of interesting things that don't really touch. But the more that I've been um, reading people like Kripal, who you've had on your podcast a couple of times, the more I'm like, yeah, there's some interesting deep work to be done on, on some of these subjects. Absolutely. And, you know, not to make too much of the metaphor, but when I was a kid, you know, if my mashed potatoes touched my carrots, there'd be a major problem. But, you know, you grow up, you, you you know, you learn some things and then you're like, hey, this, there's a whole new world of flavor if you just mix these things together. But actually, I'm actually curious about that because you, one of the things you were saying was like more and more those two worlds seem to be kind of like coming together. And I, I'm wondering if that's just like because I, I experienced the same thing yeah. by virtue of kind of my own interest um, or if there's something kind of broader going on in in, in intellectual space or something like this. I'm I'm not sure. It's a really interesting question, and anything that I said right now would be conjecture, but it's mm-hmm. on a podcast that's just con- conjecture. Um, that's what we do here. Yeah, I'm not sure either because, uh, you know, for anybody that used to listen to PTR, 
you know, we would often touch on the tradition or set loose set of traditions commonly referred to under the umbrella of Hermeticism, which is, you know, not a real tradition. Many people will point out and say um, mm-hmm. it, it's really just a word that we use for a collection of what um, Honograph, Wouter Honograph. Yeah, Honograph, he would call rejected knowledge, I believe. Um, yeah. Which, you know, is a negative label. So it's just knowledge that wasn't really, um, I don't know how you might put it, but knowledge that really didn't take hold in the sort of mainstream or didn't really influence the common imagination the way that, you know, are received kind of um, broadly dualistic, broadly Platonist in a kind of stereotypical sense, I guess, metaphysics, Mm -hmm. uh, which to be fair, like I am a big fan of Platonism, but the the sort of hermetic view of of Plato is a lot different, or I should say the re, the the hermetic reception of Platonism is yeah. a lot different, a lot more focused on you know the interaction of matter and spirit, and yeah, um, I like I really like it as a way of thinking about the connection between spiritual practices and like the physical sciences like actual empirical physical science or it's just, it's just a much more holistic. It's much more. Yeah. Holistic, I guess is a good word. It's much more holistic paradigm about sort of the function of thought kind of alongside all these other faculties, if you want to call it that. Um, And yeah. So anyways, we, we covered a lot of that kind of stuff. We did some stuff on Bruno. Um, I got really into Valentin Tomberg, uh, very obscure, Catholic thinker in the mid 20th century who wrote an entire treatise on the tarot and a sort of esoteric Christian interpretation of the tarot as like a some a kind of model for like growth and development. Introduced by Von Balthazar of all people. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Von Balthazar was, uh, you know, gave a gave a pretty, mm-hmm. I, I would say, overall positive review of it, uh, which, you know, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there, I think, for a lot of people that, you know, Valentin Tomberg, who is, you know, I, I believe he was involved with like anthroposophy and just various other sort of occult-ish groups. Um, but at the end of the day, he's a Catholic. Yeah. Uh, well, I find him an interesting figure just because um, he sort of shows what kind of synthesis could be. Um, or what a different kind of underlying, not even metaphysics, but underlying sort of attitude toward matter could look like. That's not necessarily like, it's not liberal Protestantism, yep. Um, yep. which is which is the majority of like process theology that you're going to get is coming from uh, the Wesleyan tradition in a lot of cases. And and I love and I love I love my process people. Um, it's but it's very different. It's a very different synthesis. It's a very different worldview. It's open to a lot of exploration and experimentation. Um, looking for correspondences is a big concepts and images and smells and flavors have resonances that are, yeah. you know, somehow complementary to each other or somehow kind of involved in the same idea, if you want to talk about it that way. Uh, which again, you could get. I th- I think you can get a lot of that stuff from Plato, but just the uh, 
the sort of understanding of the magus as a kind of figure who i don't I, I don't really have a really elegant way to say this right now but a kind of figure who almost like changes the world through their interpretation of it in a way or well in the in the christian tradition and theology like uh, a real a real true preoccupation with the book of nature right not mm-hmm. and not just as something we need to start with so that we can develop some axioms uh for for natural theology and then say by the way that's what we mean by the trinity and then here's the bible and now we're going to you know move yeah. on to the real stuff which is revealed religion uh the book of nature never sort of leaves the view i guess in there which i think and the, i've been spending a lot of time in the sort of esoteric and occult literature lately has been something i've been i've been really interested in and one of the things that really jumped out to me is there's like an entirely different kind of notion of causality that runs there where you have like the kind of natural scientific causality, right? And it's about the way in which, you know, the kind of atoms bouncing in the void, these sorts of things. And you can you can track down this material causality. And what I think you get in a lot of esoteric traditions is a like a causality of meaning. Uh, and so that you have it isn't it isn't fully a causal, but instead the idea is it's it's the the causality of meaning rather than a causality of materiality. Um, and so there's a in, in some ways almost sort of a materialization of meaning, um, which I think is is very cool. And so this is where I think like something like correspondences and symbolism becomes very material in important ways. And this is for me what is really exciting about delving into some of that work is that. The sort of sharp delineation between meaning and materiality is uh. sort of brought into a, a sort of a monism where where meaning itself is material. A lot of what you said is what I was kind of grasping for there. So thank you. Um, I'm curious, is this at all bear on your interpretation of like synchronicity from Jung? I'm, I, I, what yeah. I'm saying is it seems to be involved there. Can you please explicate? Uh, yes. Uh, so, yeah, I've been doing some work sort of thinking about synchronicity and working with synchronicity, which is really something that for me is coming um, out of just a, a kind of deep fascination with um, the Newkirks and the whole sort of uh, horizon around them. So uh, for listeners who might not be familiar, the Newkirks are a married couple uh, who were sort of ghost hunters, um, but they put out um, this two season, really, really bizarre show called Hellier that starts out as sort of a cryptid hunt uh, and then sort of branches in every possible direction. It gets into magic. It gets into ufology. It gets into the Mothman. Uh, you sort of name it. Uh, but what I find really fascinating about the show is, one, it's really bizarre, um, but and also kind of beautifully shot. So they really great cinematography, good sound design, things along those lines. Um, so partially it's just what if, you know, ghost hunting show, but also aesthetically pleasing for once. Um, so that's that's part of it. That's really nice. But what I'm also really fascinating is the fascinated with is the way that there's this logic of synchronicity as method that runs through this. This idea that these confluences of meaning, often in in like really you know it's synchronicity, this really kind of coincidence driven way of thinking about the world. So they will be 
at a site and then they'll see something and it will remind them of a passage of a book that they were reading and they'll go and they'll they'll look through that book and they'll find a reference to something else and then they'll go talk to this person who wrote that book and then they'll talk to this person uh and then this will remind them of you know this this weird experiment that they did and, and kind of on and on and on and there's this like infinite chain of meaning that I find really deeply fascinating and and sort of intoxicating um particularly in the way in which it kind of breaks out of the kinds of logics that we generally take as as legitimate forms of evidence. They're just they're playing in an entirely different sandbox and you know whether it's legitimate or not like whatever, I don't know. That's not a question I find at all interesting. What I find interesting is the actual process of doing that work. And so all of that to say, yeah, I think synchronicity I think is probably one of the best articulated ways of thinking about what the materiality of meaning looks like. Yeah. One of the things I think is interesting about synchronicities is the, the way that people will will talk sometimes or oftentimes about coincidences in, you know, kind of a reductive way. You'll hear this all the time. People say, you know, this or that is, it's just a coincidence, you know, and the, and the just there is doing a lot of the work. It's perfectly fine, I think, to point out the way that different things or similar things occur at the same time. And in that sense, I guess, yeah, it's a way of not saying much at all because, sure, the entire universe is a kind of coinciding of events all at once, right? But um, that doesn't do anything for how one attends to those events or, or makes meaning from those events. And, and I think often this comes from a misunderstanding of at least the way that I think about something like synchronicity, where there's this idea, is it synchronicity or is it just a coincidence, um, and I think that the the proper solution to that is, is yes, it is always both that synchronicity yeah. isn't about whether or not something is a coincidence. It is about how do we respond to coincidence? And it's about how do you find meaning in coincidence in interesting ways? I think this is, you know, for example, thinking about something like people who do um, divination with the tarot, tarot, for example, what are you doing in that? There's there's one like sort of hyper determinist approach to this. That's like, well, it's telling the future, right? There's this determinist future that's coming and the cards will reveal that future to me, to you. I find that entirely both unconvincing at a sort of technical level. And also I'm just not interested in that kind of determinism, but I still find something like that really fascinating because I think what you can say without going into determinism is you can say that what happens in that moment is that you are extracting meaning out of your relationship to the cards in that moment and that you are kind of building these synchronicities by making those linkages between events in your past, you know, things that you're anxious about, things that you're thinking about, and you are building these these networks of meanings, um, which again, if if meaning is material, isn't just something you're making up but rather right. something you are sort of experimenting with. Yeah, and that sort of chance mechanism is really central to that. And free association, which I think is going to come into play a little bit with what we're going to do here today. Um, because although the three of us selected little clips that we're going to respond to kind of at random, I'm sort of curious, you know, maybe as we go along, what we can get from kind of doing a diffractive reading of some kind, right? Or, you know, what's what's common uh, to these clips that we picked. So. Um, Jacob, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I chose a clip from the film director, David Lynch, uh, who's notoriously obscure in his interviews about like the meaning of his films, but he's actually quite explicit 
about his creative process, which is, from what I can tell, fairly idiosyncratic, uh, at least in terms of film directors that I've listened to <laughs> talking about their creative process, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, thinking to go back to the beginning conversation, sort of synchronicity as method is often, I think, the way he makes his films. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually that's really interesting here, because one of the things I've been thinking about, and here's a plug for your difference in repetition course coming up, um, as I've been reading Deleuze for some writing I'm doing, you know, Deleuze has like a really strong notion that ideas are real things that you really interact with that really have a kind of virtual reality that isn't dependent on you. So there's there's a kind of realism with regard to ideas. And that's what I find so fascinating about David Lynch. Uh, he has kind of a insistence that ideas are these real things that you have to pay attention to. And if you just listen to the idea, it will tell you what to do, right? Um, which I actually don't think is a metaphor at all. Uh, I think he's actually describing what it's like for him to make a movie. Um, so I just brought this clip for a couple of reasons. One, because it does kind of overlap with some writing I'm doing. Two, big David Lynch fan, love to hear him talk. And three, I wanted to bring in something a little, uh, a little fluffy, I guess to, uh, I don't know. I figured, I figured the two of you would make me think about big, difficult things. Uh, and, uh, so I wanted to think about entertainment a little bit as well. So awesome. Here we go. Ideas are the number one thing. And if you have some, it, if you have the first idea, that's the most critical one. And then I say it's like bait in fishing. That idea will, if you focus on it, it'll, it'll draw other ideas in. And, but you don't know, like fishing, you have to have patience. You don't know how long it'll take. But if you keep focusing on it and, and wiggle the line a little bit, it, it'll bring them in. How interested are you in logic in any traditional sense? Because some of the things no, no, all of them have a logic. I'm very interested in logic, but there's logic is not like um, there's there's a kind of a there's it's it goes to toward abstraction. There can be logical things that are abstract. It's it's a I really love intuition. I love intuition. And to me, what they told me is intuition is the intellect and emotions swimming together. It's like a knowingness. And a logic means it feels correct. And it's logical. It's logical, but not in a, in a kind of a, there's degrees of it. You feel that people, when they see films in the movie theater, are expecting to revel in something you explained away by the ending. Basically, come up going, "Oh, I know what it was about." You know, there's nothing wrong with that, and that's very satisfying um, to to know what's going on. But at the same time, I love abstractions, and and the power of cinema. 
to tell abstractions is huge. So it's as if people either don't have so much intuition or they don't trust their intuition or whatever. And there's, um, there's a lot of noise in the cinema. And if you're not paying attention, because every little thing is, is got to be right. And, and you can, you can kind of, you've got to get into that world uh, and then trust your own intuition. That's cool. I mean, of course I've heard of David Lynch, but I'm not a big film buff. So like, what are, what are some films that people would automatically be like, Oh, he did that. Oh uh, yeah. So probably his most popular films I would say are probably blue velvet and Mulholland drive and twin peaks. He directed most of twin peaks. Um, and uh, he also directed some more far out stuff. Um, so one of my favorites actually is Eraserhead, which is his first film, which is very, um, very abstract in a lot of ways. Uh, is that a horror flick? It sounds like a horror character. Eraserhead's going to get you, you know? You know, I would say, so it did play a lot at like midnight theaters, a lot of uh, sort of pulpy theaters at the time. So um, it does kind of have a little bit of that. Um, reputation i guess as kind of maybe a b maybe a b-ish movie but really as a film uh i think it is a real um artistic achievement actually and and the thing is the more that you watch it sort of the more you can see the intentional humor in it as well so yeah i don't know it's actually kind of difficult to talk about <laughs> to talk about uh david lynch films if you haven't seen them i guess no i've seen twin peaks so i, I get okay the, i get the difficulty that you're having yeah there. twin twin peaks is i would say probably his at least in my experience probably his most accessible yeah. um stuff i think my favorite goes back and forth between Eraserhead and mulholland drive but most I of love mulholland drive yeah. it's an amazing film well, and you know what he just said about the abstractions and logic of his movies. Um, the example that came to mind was Mulholland Drive, which if you ever if you watch it, um, the first time you watch it, you'll have no idea what's going on. It's bizarre. Um, but upon sort of repeat watches, at least for me, um, there's a very clear story actually happening. Mm -hmm. um, it's just represented in a very abstract way there's a couple scenes that are really really important in terms of like narrative transitions that uh, are highly abstract and kind of like not... keystones if you don't if you miss it you'll, you won't get it yeah and and the, and the thing is it takes place in a fairly believable like it's a believable setting you mm -hmm. know um it's a believable setting with almost a few i want to say like magically realist or surrealist kind of elements. Yeah. Um, Twin Peaks is a little different because there's a lot of like esoteric lore that is that is explicitly being included for the world building of Twin Peaks. And I think a lot of that's Mark Frost, who is who is the the collaborator with David Lynch on the storyline. But in something like Mulholland Drive, you don't have lore so much as you just have this kind of feeling. They're like affect movies in in many ways. Yeah. The, you know what? I think a really good analog for what something like Mulholland Drive is that 
they're like the closest experience I've had to what it it might look like if you tried to put something like Finnegan's Wake on film. Everything is being guided by dream logic. Um, it's always symbolism first, plot second, um, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Although what's so interesting about this little clip right here is symbolism and plot and any other way you could slice it up. Right. I guess maybe this is like my question based on the based on the uh, clip and what I'm sort of interested in here is like, what is David Lynch doing when he is returning to an idea, you know, and and like trying to get guidance from the idea? Uh, yeah, he used know. this. Um, I picked up on he said, you know, you latch on to this idea and then you use it as bait. Again, I don't want to, you know, make too much of the metaphor, but what's the mechanism at work there, right? Like, what are you drawing in? Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, I don't know exactly what I think in terms of like the metaphysics of ideas or whatever. I don't, I, I haven't finished sort of making sense of this for myself. I just find the process, the, the creative process in the way it's described here, just, a really, really interesting case study in a sort of approach to art and an approach to thinking in a way that is not reductive because in a way you're kind of giving some sort of agency to something outside of yourself. Even if let's say it's just pure fantasy and the and and maybe David Lynch is naive about like ideas actually existing, but really they're all just sort of like in his head and they're random firings of neurons and you know, you're in, you're there meditating or whatever. And suddenly you think of something that happened to you in your childhood and now it's in the script, you know, um, even if that's what's going on, I think the sort of commitment to allowing this quasi external agency have an outsized influence over the creative product, like the outcome of, uh, the, the art, right. It's just so interesting, like just to think about what it feels like for something to be quasi external almost. I think a really good like case study of this is the sort of famous example of Bob, the the sort of antagonist of, of the Twin Peaks universe, where, you know, this is like sort of deeply creepy, you know, just very strange, very sweaty guy. Um, I think the first time you encounter Bobby sort of creepily crawling over a couch and it's unclear what's happening. Uh, and, you know, as far as at least I understand the the, the lore of, of how that came to pass was that he was like a, a lighting tech or something like he was he was some sort of a technical person on the set. Uh, and at one point, David Lynch just sort of glanced at the set and he was like climbing over a couch or something. And he was like, Oh, that's the shot. That's what we need. And he's just like, film that. And, and it's amazing to think about because like, as the show goes on, Bob is like the main like thing. Like that's like the driving force of the entire plot line was that he's standing on set and he looks over and he sees something. And there's something about that moment that captures him in some ways. It's not coming out of him. It is like something in the world that latches out and says, I need to be in this show, which I think is quite cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard that story too. And I think that's right. Yeah. You know, like you're saying, like you were saying with, with synchronicity and as a uh, method almost, you know, that's actually, it's, it's a nice little uh, synchronicity here, uh, I guess that 
I did not have the idea of synchronicity on my mind at all when uh, I picked this um, clip. But uh, yeah, I think maybe there's something there about synchronicity as a sort of inside, sort of outside, like mm. meaning, you know, anyways. Right, because it's not purely external, right? There's a sort of hermeneutical dimension to it. You're, you're participating in the meaning making and, you know, you remove any one of those terms, it, you don't get the synchronicity. Mm hmm. So there's a kind of coherence, right, between parts, whether whether it's you know the ideas or or subjects or anything like this. And I wonder if maybe that's what he's getting at, in a sense. Like if you think about an idea as having certain contours or a certain shape or certain powers associated with it, right? It's going to have a certain coherence with other kinds of ideas that it'll. I guess I'm still stuck on the fishing thing, right? If you just leave it out there. Uh, something else, something come will come in and stick to it, right? And and then that's pretty much I think what I just heard you describe, Justin, in terms of the creative process, right? There's a sort of improvisational ethos that's associated with that. And he spoke about uh, the centrality of intuition for his work as well. And what I I think is really interesting, you you really latched onto the the fishing metaphor. There's a different piece of his language that really jumped out to me, which is the use of love. He kept talking about things he loves. I love intuition. I love abstractions. Um, and part of what I'm thinking about is the way in which there's almost like an ethic of the idea, I think, that kind of runs through the way he was describing this, this idea of what does it look like when you relate lovingly to ideas and that there's this affective relationship that allows a sort of kind of procreation of ideas. It reminds me of, you know, somebody like Deleuze, for example, who is constantly talking about his sort of disinterest in negativity, right? He's he's not a thinker of the or, he's not a dialectician. The fact that... Uh, um, uh, Jacob, you're going to be doing your dissertation with Kierkegaard and the losing conversation, I think is really interesting um, because there's a literal either or um, the yep. book, but there's also like a just sort of a foundational either orness to Kierkegaard, whereas there's a both andness to Deleuze. And I see that both andness in this idea of these often really disturbing and uncomfortable and bizarre movies are nevertheless products of an ethic and an act of love where it's, it's like you, you see an idea and you love that idea into its into its fullness man that's really good uh i just wrote it down you might end up in a footnote somewhere uh, at some <laughs> point but uh that, that, but, was, um, that was really good yeah an ethic of the idea i really like that and and what you said reminded me um you know david lynch is a very uh some would say a shill i would say a promoter of uh transcendental meditation uh, which is it's one of the things out there on the on on the market, I guess. Uh, and I use that word <laughs> with all of its implications. Uh, but uh, what's so interesting in, in a lot of that meditative practice is one of the first things you got to do is learn that you are not your thoughts. Right. And in a lot, at least in a lot of the literature and the practices I've been exposed to, there is a recommendation to sort of relate to thoughts relate to ideas with kind of a a a smile or yeah. or a sort of a, sort of bemusement of, of sorts right right so that and and the thing is that that mode of relation to thoughts i think is something enabled by that sort of practice you know i don't i don't know if you would say it's natural or unnatural or whatever like in terms of the ease with which we can sort of think about thoughts that way as a as a culture 
Um, but, uh, you know, that that sort of really careful inspection of thoughts is something I think that carries across the spiritual practice that he's involved in and the creative process that he uh, that he's involved in as well is this very sort of, yeah, relating to thoughts as their own entities. Something that's jumped out to me as you've been talking is you you, you talked about the, the sort of smiling relation. And earlier you were talking about rewatching Eraserhead and discovering the the humor there. And I think David Lynch is funny because he's one of those people where I don't know if that dude has ever told a joke in his life. And yet he's constantly hysterical, like he's hysterically funny, but it's it's not even that he just like has a dry humor. He has this this way of unveiling the humorness of reality without having to tell a joke about it. So he doesn't do jokes about reality. He reveals the way in which reality is kind of a joke in itself. I'm thinking of like uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, he had a series of videos that he was posting like every day. He was doing like Facebook lives daily. And these videos, if I'm remembering correctly, were basically weather reports, except that with no like <laughs> with no mechanism to be able to tell the weather apart from he would start the stream and then he would look out the window and describe what he was seeing. And it's the funniest thing ever. It's incredible. Um, it's just like a perfect piece of art. Um, the great thing about that is it's not like it never comes across as though there's a distance there and he's he's telling a joke. It is rather just sort of unveiling the absurdity of of the world in certain ways um that is is just wonderful my overwhelming sense about david lynch is that he gets i i think he gets when he's being funny like i do think he understands that the weather report is a inherently funny thing but the overwhelming emotion or affect like the the overwhelming kind of sense I get from him is just complete and utter sincerity. Uh, just complete sincerity, not a drop of irony in him at all. Um, just generally like very excited to, to be alive and to experience the world, right. <laughs> and to like, and to sort of like let that experience kind of percolate. Well, this is, this is another thing. Uh, if you've seen Twin Peaks, you might know the line, there's a fish in the percolator. It's this scene in the first, I think it's the first episode of Twin Peaks where Jack Nance's character interrupts a conversation or something because uh, he opens up the coffee percolator that's on the that's on the um, stove and there's a fish in it. Right. Which I've heard a lot of people note, like you said, Matt, that for David Lynch, ideas are like fish and you have to fish them. And there, there's also this the the idea that your brain is like a percolator. And so there are all these weird puns sort of scattered, not even puns, but just sort of very almost almost Freudian like dream symbols, very, very literal and very, very symbolic at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is which is I think that might be part of how he makes his movies feel so dreamlike. Right. There are a ton of associations there. There's a lot of logic. But like he's saying what he's trying to represent and what he says cinema can tell he says it can tell abstractions right which I'm, I'm really interested in like why he chose to say it like that uh it's something I'm, i gotta think about but cinema can tell abstractions right cinema can tell a dream it can tell 
multiple levels of association and logic at once, which texts can too, but just not in the same sort of multimodal way and not with the same sort of economy and precision that cinema can. Um, anyways, I feel like I'm uh, rambling now, but... Uh... No, it's great. There's, there's a lot going on here. I mean, I, I really like the other thing he was saying about intuition as a sort of... I don't know if this is the way you put it, but it's sort of confluence between intellection and emotion. Of course, it's it's speaking, speaking of, uh, of fish metaphors, his, his yeah. exact language was intuition is intellect and emotion swimming together. See? Yeah. to do what to pick um i don't know just the other day it came popped into my head i want to talk about prometheus maybe because you know matt valor and i when we read through um stiegler's book prometheus centered heavily the myth of prometheus and you know heidegger's all in there as well i guess there's a couple of things that for me that are of intense interest in that um is on one hand like how we or how i relate to the future I'm not sure what to do with the future right now. You know, for a lot of people, the future has been canceled. You know, we've heard that. I'm not sure that that's where I want to land, um, even a, even if it might be the case. So there's a kind of practical element to it. There's a spiritual element, but then there's also um, this kind of interesting mythological element too, right? Talking about technology and how technology kind of factors into all this. Anyway, um, yeah, this guy is, uh, what's his name? Giorgiani, something like this. I mentioned this guy to you a while back. Justin, you were like, oh, he's a Nazi. He's like a literal Nazi. Oh, th- like that, Giorgiani. Yeah, yeah, he is a Nazi. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I shouldn't give this guy the time of day. So I, I d- tried to do some research, and I haven't found anything that has explicitly connected him to Nazism. So I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Um, I, I have the footnotes if you want them, but I, I think it's still worth worth uh, checking out what he has to say. Yeah, I think you know, in the same way that we'll, we we t- we still take Heidegger seriously, I think he has some interesting things to 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 say. So anyway, here's the clip. The paranormal, what's been studied by you know parapsychologists and by ufologists and so forth on the fringes of uh, scientific research, the paranormal is a clue or a key to understanding the essence of technological science as a whole. Uh, That when you understand that paranormal phenomena are not supernatural, but that they are parts of the natural world that are being filtered out and pushed to the fringe by our prevailing scientific paradigm, you realize that this uh, mechanistic framework of modern science is actually a projection over nature. And it's also a projection in another sense, insofar as whatever can be captured within the net of scientific rationality, which has a fundamentally mathematical nature, right, 
also allows you to project forward from what you know to what's going to happen in the future. And this has to do with one of the quintessential aspects or attributes of Prometheus. Prometheus is the one who sees ahead. Uh, Prometheus comes from the word for forethought in Greek, Promethea. Uh, it's a kind of anticipatory knowing. And so what we're doing in the modern scientific enterprise is we're actually casting a net over nature and grasping phenomena in a way that allows for anticipation and projection and therefore control. And this is a, I basically describe it as a demonic force that's at work on the world, transforming both nature in the sense of the environment and also human nature. What is effectively what I'm getting at is that there's a kind of reversal that takes place when you focus on the margins of uh, modern scientific research and look at the types of phenomena studied by parapsychologists, telepathy, psychokinesis, and so forth. There's a kind of reversal that takes place where you realize once you get past naive metaphysical dualism and you understand the world as a world of power, right, the way that Nietzsche did or the way that William James did, you realize that What's been pushed to the fringe is not supernatural. It's that the world as understood by modern science is itself a kind of conjury. It, it is a kind of demonic power over nature that's making nature appear in a certain way so that it can be controlled more effectively. Modern science is black magic. It can be very empowering as long as we understand that it's what we're doing. Where it becomes dangerous is when we undergo this dissociation of the Promethean spirit of modern science from ourselves, and it begins to control us, where we begin to be set up by increasingly autonomous systems of technical organization and the algorithmic organization of information, so that throughout this whole framework of increasingly networked technologies, we wind up coming under the control of what appears to be an external and alien force, right? So that there is, as it were, a kind of artificial intelligence that begins to arise and organize our lives without that AI being localized in any particular computer. It's a kind of pervasive artificial intelligence, except this intelligence is profoundly stupid because it's actually an alienated and abstracted aspect of ourselves. Right? And so we're in a, on a social scale, we're in a kind of dissociated state where the Promethean spirit of science has become a runaway Frankenstein's monster that's imperiling human life in all kinds of ways. And for the Promethean spirit of science to fulfill its potential, we have to be able to reintegrate this power and to recognize it as emerging from our own collective unconscious so that we can then more consciously take control of it and with discernment, with proper judgment, uh, be able to use it in ways that are empowering and that encourage human flourishing, rather than in ways that imperil the total instrumentalization of human existence. Thanks. Right on. So, yeah, there's a lot there. I think the biggest thing for me is there's just a, a deep ambiguity between the, the myth of Prometheus, the promise of technology, right? The idea that we're going to liberate ourselves through technology and in many ways we we have and, and do. Um, and then like my more Christian side with the myth of the fall. And I don't know kind of what to do between those two seemingly, com I don't know if they're competing myths, but I, I kind of read them together in a way. I, I'm not sure 
how to kind of relate to technology in the future. Like I'm like, should I be a Luddite? Should I plug into uh, my Neuralink and um, fly off into the stars? You know, I, not that those are like necessarily two options to me. I think they're both fraught with all kinds of problems. I don't know. There's just like a deep ambiguity in, in, in all of that for me. So what's interesting is, you know, as I was listening to that this time, you, you mentioned that I guess this guy has some far right uh, leanings. I'm starting to notice a trend here. I'm sort of, I guess, more frequently coming into contact with thinkers who are reactionary and also have a thing for cosmic horror, I guess. And what really jumped out to me here is the the three figures I kind of heard behind what was said there were uh, H.P. Lovecraft, Heidegger with the tech stuff, and then uh, Nick Land, right? All three very, very reactionary individuals. And I'm just wondering if we could like interrogate that a little bit. What was the Lovecraft stuff that you were picking up on there? Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of this sense that something huge is getting out of control and is kind of indifferent to our mode of being, indifferent to humanity as such, or like what it means to sort of live the kinds of lives that we live and have the kinds of local concerns that we have and mm. and the kind of need for a sort of um, meaning and a sort of life that we need for happiness or uh, even at a very sort of baseline kind of level. And that this AI he was saying is profoundly stupid. And so that was giving me uh, HPL vibes because there's a sense in which these elder gods in, in Lovecraft are the thing that is scary about them is that you can't relate to them, right? They don't and, care. And they don't care, right? Yeah, and they so, don't hate you. They don't care about you. <laughs> right. They're just something different, right? And, you know, they could burp or something and the earth would explode. And no, it, it's it's the same thing as like a kid, you know, stepping on an ant or something. I, I wonder, though, if it would be worth drawing a division here, because on the one hand, like, right, I'm not committed to trying to, like, recover Lovecraft. You know, he said some garbage stuff. But I do think it's really interesting that he turns away from his earlier reactionary era later in his life uh, and starts to embrace uh, some sort of light leftist politics and begins to venture a little bit out of his xenophobia and stuff later in his life. So the reason I bring that up again is not to, you know, say he's fine or whatever, because he's, you know, he's Lovecraft, he's what he is. Um, but rather that I think there's an underlying logic for him that's different than somebody like Giorgiani or somebody like Heidegger, because I think they're fundamentally romantic thinkers. So for them, the rejection of technology, or at least this like cynicism and skepticism around technology comes from this romantic place that we need to get back to, a, you know, a direct connection to the land and these sorts of things. Whereas Lovecraft is, in many ways, I think he is like an early postmodernist in a certain way, where he's passing through the modernist moment. He's like, for him, the terror of cosmic horror comes from 
not the rejection of rationalism, but the the sort of pursuit of rationalism to its most extreme form. The terrifying reality of rationalism is that the universe doesn't give a shit about you um, and all of these sorts of things. And so I think that the fact that he's not a romantic is why he's able to, I think, break out of this later in his life in a way that somebody like Heidegger would was never able to repent for his Nazism, for example. And I think it's because there's that fundamentally different presupposition there regarding what technology is and what our place in the universe is. I don't know if that resonates at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that a lot. And obviously, you know, what you're saying, what you're saying is supported by the sort of opening lines of Call of Cthulhu, right? The the greatest mercy, the thing we should be the most grateful for is that we're not capable of thinking reality completely. Because yeah. if we were, it would break our minds, right? Which is what you're saying about him sort of passing through modernism in this kind of way. I I'd never heard that stuff about uh, Lovecraft changing at all. So that's interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was a, you know, an early 20th century wasp. So, you know, he's we never end with, a you know, woke Lovecraft. But there does seem to be some <laughs> evidence that he began to travel really heavily. That'd be a hysterical like sitcom or something. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'm not even I'm not necessarily interested in, like you're saying, recovering or redeeming or in some way, whatever. I mean. What's interesting, I think, is the constellation of this body of work with the exceptionally, exceptionally reactionary life that he led and real fear that he had. And it's just interesting to see the way that fears and reactivity and all of these kind of things are are expressed through uh, fiction. And I don't know, I the the relationship between horror and conservatism and reactionary uh, thinking is very troubling to me. I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, but, you know, horror is like an inherently conservative genre in some in some ways because it's some the, genres. Zombies, I think, are an exception. I, I think historically what you, you see in the zombie literature is this this way of I'm thinking of somebody like Romero, where you have this early critique of consumerism that is, is really, really apparent in his early work. Uh, you have the way that uh, the sort of Haitian zombie myth is connected to anti-slave revolts uh, or anti-slavery revolts, I mean, uh, and things along those lines. So I, I do think that we shouldn't abandon horror as a genre to, to the right. I think there is there are are aspects of that that I think are totally recoverable. Yeah, I guess maybe what to get more precise here, like I think the affect of horror, the affect of fear lends itself toward trying to preserve, conserve, protect, defend. And generally, these are the kinds of affects that you find foregrounded in conservatism, uh, in the rhetoric and, and in just sort of the culture of conservatism. That's not to say every single right, every single horror film is inherently conservative, because, I mean, look at the stuff Jordan Peele's doing. It's very interesting. Um, and especially recently, there's a lot of very interesting subversions that are happening there. And obviously horror, like as an art form throughout history, is like very, very diverse. But there does seem to be, at least to me, there seems to be some kind of connection between the types of uh, affects that are foregrounded in horror and in conservative politics specifically. I don't know what you would think about that. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I think there is something to that. I mean, I I also wonder if there's a sort of a disavowed fear or or fear pointed in a different direction. 
that a more transhumanist oriented person um the fear of being stuck on this planet fear of dying off as a species there's you know there's different kinds of fears it's interesting you think of somebody like peter Thiel, right that reactionary stuff that we were talking about and that transhumanism because of the fear ends up fully converging in the space of somebody like like Thiel. yeah i think there's plenty of things to be fearful of and i think this is i guess why i'm feeling this deep ambiguity because uh, frankly i feel terrified by both the conservative and the progressive view i think like i think they're both fucking terrifying certainly we don't want to go um backwards not that that's a, a possibility of course but the transhumanist vision is i'm not even sure that how that's a humanist vision at all and yes. the, the the language, the metaphor that's used there, I think, is really interesting. Again, we were talking about what what kinds of weird things would emerge from the juxtaposition of these. Um, did you notice he also uses a fishing metaphor, but he uses it negatively? Um, and so he talks about demonic forces casting yeah. a net over nature. And so we have this these two different sort of images. One is is using the idea as bait in order to lovingly produce more ideas. And the other is this idea of technology being this this sort of constricting net that is going to gobble everything up. Um, and I think it's interesting to think about the difference between something like the idyllic image of like, you know, sitting with your fishing pole on the side of a stream, you know, on a nice summer day, which is is what I think you get with Lynch's metaphor versus I'm picturing, you know, these big trawlers that are just gobbling up the ocean and extinguishing species. And, you know, all the poor dolphins are getting caught in the nets and all of this sort of thing uh, seems to be the image that Giorgiani is invoking here as a description of of technology. And so even in this one metaphor, you can see the difference between this sort of radically optimistic perspective and this radically pessimistic perspective. You want to go? Are we hopping over? Yeah, sure. All right, let me pull this up and then I'll do a little intro here. Um, While you're pulling that up, can I just say one more thing? Yeah, yeah. Earlier, we were talking about CCRU and some of the early cybernetic stuff. It's a long story, <laughs> but okay. essentially the, a group that, um, you know, Nick Land and Mark Fisher and uh, Sadie Plant and uh, a couple others were involved in. That was the other voice I sort of heard in the background there, because as far as I understand it, Land's whole thing is that AI and capitalism are the same thing, kind of. And it's this impersonal structure and I'm, I'm butchering this, somebody else will get it right, but it's this concept of hyperstition that this thing like brings itself into existence and these structures of efficiency and quantification and, and growth and profit and all of this kind of stuff are springing up around us. And like, we don't really have a say in it and nobody can stop it. And it, so it becomes its own right. sort of obje objective entity. Right. This one. Yeah, it's like a sort, sort of, of an, abstracted, like an egregore in a certain way. It's exactly like an egregore. It's like an ex abstracted um, reification. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, becomes its own thing. Right. And, and so I heard a lot of that going on there, too, which I thought was was uh, kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, when he uses that language, like the demonic forces or, or demonic, I think he's being really intentional there. Like, I don't think this is a metaphor for him. <laughs> I think there's a certain sense in which he sees these things as as really genuinely um, demonic. All right, are we hopping over? Yeah, man, do it.
All right. Uh, so for my clip, I decided to bring in a clip from a kind of audiobook reading of uh, the very uh, kind of opening few paragraphs of Arthur Mackin's The White People, which is uh, this very strange kind of novella short story. I don't uh, something along those lines. Um, and the main core of the text is a series of journal entries uh, by uh, like a young woman who is having all of these strange experiences with fairies and and these different things and sort of passing out of our world into these other worlds and different things along those lines, uh, this very kind of um, Anglo mythology, Anglo folklore, um, or like Anglo Celtic folklore. Um, so anyway, you have these these journals, but these are framed with this this bookend narrative between these two guys basically sitting around having a conversation and the opening conversation is about the nature of sin and the way that sin is reframed here uh, in a sort of non-moral way, I found really, really fascinating. So that's why I wanted to bring this clip. Sorcery and sanctity, said Ambrose. These are the only realities. Each is an ecstasy, a withdrawal from the common life. Cotgrave listened, interested. He had been brought by a friend to this moldering house in a northern suburb, through an old garden to the room where Ambrose, the recluse, dozed and dreamed over his books. Yes, he went on, magic is justified of her children. There are many, I think, who eat dry crusts and drink water, with a joy infinitely sharper than anything within the experience of the practical epicure. You are speaking of the saints? Yes, and of the sinners, too. I think you are falling into the very general error of confining the spiritual world to the supremely good. But the supremely wicked necessarily have their portion in it. The merely carnal, sensual man can no more be a great sinner than he can be a great saint. Most of us are just indifferent, mixed-up creatures. We muddle through the world without realizing the meaning and the inner sense of things, and consequently our wickedness and our goodness are alike, second-rate, unimportant. And you think the great sinner, then, will be an ascetic as well as the great saint? Great people of all kinds forsake the imperfect copies and go to the perfect originals. I have no doubt, but that many of the very highest among the saints have never done a good action— using the words in their ordinary sense. And, on the other hand, there have been those who have sounded the very depths of sin, who all their lives have never done an ill deed. He went out of the room for a moment, and Cotgrave, in high delight, turned to his friend and thanked him for the introduction. He's grand, he said. I never saw that kind of lunatic before. Ambrose returned with more whiskey and helped the two men in a liberal manner. He abused the teetotal sect with ferocity as he handed the seltzer and, pouring out a glass of water for himself, was about to resume his monologue when Cotgrave broke in. I can't stand it, you know, he said. Your paradoxes are too monstrous. A man may be a great sinner and yet never do anything sinful. Come. You're quite wrong, said Ambrose. I never make paradoxes. I wish I could. I merely said that a man may have an exquisite taste in Romani Conti and yet never have even smelt for ale. 
that's all, and it's more like a truism than a paradox, isn't it? Your surprise at my remark is due to the fact that you haven't realized what sin is. Oh yes, there is a sort of connection between sin with the capital letter and actions which are commonly called sinful with murder, theft, adultery, and so forth. Much the same connection that there is between the ABCs and fine literature. But I believe that the misconception, it is all a bit universal, arises in great measure from our looking at the matter through social spectacles. We think that a man who does evil to us and to his neighbors must be very evil. And so he is from a social standpoint. But can't you realize that evil, in its essence, is a lonely thing, a passion of the solitary individual soul? Really, the average murderer qua murderer is not by any means a sinner in the true sense of the word. He is simply a wild beast that we have got to get rid of to save our own necks from his knife. I should class him rather with tigers than with sinners. It seems a little strange. I think not. The murderer murders not from positive qualities, but from negative ones. He lacks something which non-murderers possess. Evil, of course, is wholly positive. It is only on the wrong side. You may believe me that sin, in its proper sense, is very rare. It is probable that there have been far fewer sinners than saints. Yes, your standpoint is all very well for practical social purposes. We are naturally inclined to think that a person who is very disagreeable to us must be a very great sinner. It is very disagreeable to have one's pocket picked, and we pronounce the thief to be a very great sinner. In truth, he is merely an undeveloped man. He cannot be a saint, of course, but he may be, and often is, an infinitely better creature than thousands who have never broken a single commandment. He is a great nuisance to us, I admit, and we very properly lock him up if we catch him. But between his troublesome and unsocial action and evil, oh, the connection is of the weakest. It was getting very late. The man who had brought Cotgrave had probably heard all this before, since he assisted with a bland and judicious smile. But Cotgrave began to think that his lunatic was turning into a sage. Do you know, he said, you interest me immensely. You think, then, that we do not understand the real nature of evil? No, I don't think we do. We overestimate it, and we underestimate it. We take the very numerous infractions of our social bylaws, the very necessary and very proper regulations which keep the human company together, and we get frightened at the prevalence of sin and evil. This is really nonsense. Take theft, for example. Have you any horror at the thought of Robin Hood, of the Highland Caterans of the 17th century, of the Moss Troopers, of the company promoters of our day? Then, on the other hand, we underrate evil. We attach such an enormous importance to the sin of meddling with our pockets and our wives that we have quite forgotten the awfulness of real sin. And what is sin? said Cockgrave. I think I must reply to your question by another. What would your feelings be, seriously, if your cat or your dog began to talk to you and to dispute with you in human accents? You would be overwhelmed with horror, I am sure of it. And if the roses in your garden sang a weird song, you would go mad. And suppose the stones in the road began to swell and grow before your eyes, and if the pebble that you noticed at night had shot out stony blossoms in the morning. Well, these examples may give you some notion of what sin really is. I've been constantly obsessed with this for, you know, like the last couple of months. 
so the beginning part, I think, makes a lot of sense, right? He's making this kind of very classic Socratic distinction between there are lots of things that are sins, but we want to get to the essence of sin. There's a, a sort of a Platonism of sin, I think, that runs through this that I think is interesting. And his suggestion, you know, and again, kind of a Heideggerian way, right? Don't confuse being with beings. He's saying don't confuse sin with sins. Uh, they actually have almost nothing to do with each other. You know, the pickpocket could be a way nicer guy than you. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so then you finally get to this point where the guy seems to get it. And he's like, OK, if that's the case, then like what is sin? What is this the essence of it if it isn't reducible to all of these things? And his response is, what would your feelings be if your cat or dog began to talk to you? Uh, and I think trying to make sense of that response, I think, is what we need to do, because I think it's an absolutely fascinating response to the question, what is sin? All right. So I don't know if this is an answer. I've had this thought like over the years, it's more of just a question. It's like, is there something that you could see? Maybe this is a Lovecraft thing too. Just the sight of it alone would just make you completely insane. Yep. I think that's um, exactly what, I think that's the direction he's going. It's not a coincidence that Mackin was a major, major influence on Lovecraft. Oh, I didn't know that. But I, I'm not sure that's the right kind of framing. That That kind of question is the right way to frame it. But when he finally got around to putting it in those terms, it seemed like the kind of examples he was giving were things that were, you that could be characterized as like monstrous somehow, right? Like there, there's a violation or a transgression of some prescribed boundaries that were, whether they were real or not, but there's a violation, a transgression of those boundaries. And that doesn't really sort of match up with the way that people typ typically think of sin Yep. So I'm not sure what to do with that. And that's this is I, why I love it so much, because precisely because it doesn't because like the moralizing definition of sin, I find so incredibly boring. Mm -hmm. uh, and whatever this is, it's not boring. Yeah. Well, what's so fascinating about this is sin is painted as having a positive existence in some way or a positive being a positive force. Right. Yeah. Fuck you, Augustine. Well, so what's so funny, though, is the Augustine's insight is still preserved mostly right in this vision, which is that, yes, most people when they're sinning, yep. quote unquote, it's a privation of the good. They're just not they're not enlightened or they're acting irrationally or whatever. And so they're doing what they think is the good or they're trying to achieve a good and maybe overvaluing the specific good and you know, running over people in the process, whatever. Um, and that, that is, he's essentially arguing for Augustine in that, in, in the first part, right. He He's giving Augustine's argument. And then he's saying, um, sin is something more fundamental and not, doesn't have really a typical morality to it. Mm -hmm. Um, it seems like, like you were saying monstrosity, you know, things not behaving how they ought to behave, the suspension of natural law probably or 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 a transgression of natural law i think a suspension is probably too negative there but so things acting contrary to their nature right which is a, a very sort of traditional way to think about sin as well but the kind of valence that it has here is so interesting and so the the thing that i think is really again the the sort of what kind of weird stuff happens when we put these together is the fact that, Matt, you brought a clip that centered on Prometheus, I think is really interesting, because I think in some ways, this is an account of sin that is more of a Promethean account of sin, 
rather than like a Judeo-Christian account of sin, where it's not this moral failure. It's this idea of you've grasped the thing you're not supposed to get. Because I think the question here is, how does this yeah. function as a frame narrative for the story of a teenage girl who is like meeting fairies and crossing into fairyland and then ends up dying at the end? She, they find her body like dead next to an altar or something like that. And I think that maybe the suggestion is she's a great sinner, not in the sense that she's like morally atrocious, but in the sense that she was grasping at something that humans aren't supposed to have or know. There are a few lines where he's kind of like, you know, like, yeah, being a the sinner is bad. But despite the fact that he kind of throws in these like being a sinner is bad kind of lines, I don't believe him. Like, I don't think he actually thinks that the sinner is wrong. I think he thinks that there are two ways of being great. You can be a saint or you can be a sinner for him. That everyone else is just these boring middling things in the middle. But there's like just you can like almost hear and maybe this is partially the performance, but I don't think it's just the performance. I think Mackin is writing this as a character where he's intoxicated by the true sinner um, who is not just this like moral beast, but is this person who's, you know, it's the Prometheus. He's He's intoxicated by Prometheus, I think, in a certain sense. There is a sort of. I don't know if dualism is exactly the right word, but I mean, he opened, he, I was really captivated by the first line, sorcery and sanctity are the only realities. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I took that note down too. And he calls both of them ecstatic. They're both outside the sort of mundane kind mm -hmm. of life. Yeah, each is an ecstatic and then requires, there's an association with each with, with um, asceticism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really not sure what to, what to do with all that. And then he says there's there's like really weird throw throwaway line about how magic is justified by her children. What do you think that's all about? Is that a you'll know it by your you'll know it by its fruits kind of argument? Is that the suggestion there? I don't know. Sure. I gotta I gotta read this whole story now. I, I know, me too. It's excellent. <laughs> but it it seems like following that same thread of like he he opposes sorcery and sanctity, not like sinfulness or debauchery or whatever sorcery and yep. sanctity and yep. sorcery right I, I i don't know what his version of sorcery entails but it seems like the ability to make things act in a i don't know contrary way or something like that it, it would be like in a way it'd be like you were talking about um meditations on the tarot and the and the magus as a sort of co-creator that would be a, yep. a, a, a sorcerer right co you, yeah. to, to think that you could co-create in the in the divine life which is in some circles very um, orthodox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that you know, Machin being a horror writer, and this is maybe going back to some of the stuff we were talking about with cosmic horror and things. Um, and again, I haven't read the story. I need to read well, it now. I should. I should suppose. I, I. I don't think he would be fairly classified as a horror writer at all. I think he would be classified in like that kind of weird fiction area but i think it's really important he doesn't get into the the, the things he experiences are always strange and bizarre yeah, but never weird or weirdness yeah so uh okay i think that's fine i can i can uh <laughs> keep going with this but i i guess what i'm trying to say is weird fiction and strange fiction and horror all have a very kind of especially like in the pulp magazines and stuff right strange tales weird fiction that kind of thing they're all it's got a very horror element to it, I guess. Um, but it seems to be capitalizing on the same, the same thing that's going on in cosmic horror, which is that the delivery of the, either you could say the fear or in this case, like the feeling of unease 
right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Is precisely those situations that don't conform or that exhibit some kind of um, deviation from the norm, right? Yep. Or or deviation from what we understand as quote unquote natural law. And so from this perspective, transgressions inspire horror or inspire, or maybe not horror. You can you can correct my terminology, Justin, but uh it inspires some kind of overwhelming emotion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um maybe what he's getting at, because to call that sin, right? I mean, a cat talking. Because, I mean, C.S. Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis wrote Narnia, and they're talking beavers and stuff in it, right? Fantasy is this whole other thing. Fairy tale. I, I always knew that shit the- was evil as hell. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, funny, though, because in the story, it's like, whoa, talking beaver, high fives all around, right? Yeah. But I, I mean, he's not wrong. If, like, if my dog in, in my house was like, you know, I walked in the door, and he's like, hey, how's it going? I would be like, I'm getting the fuck out of this house. Like, no, burn no, you it to wouldn't. The you'd, you'd be the guy from the WB cartoon who tries to like make it big on the frog who can sing Sinatra. <laughs> yes, exactly. Sorry. No, I, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there is this transgression here. There are different ways you could frame it, right? So, in one sense, you it, you could be whimsical and fantastical, and yep. you know, you you can have you know, Mr. Beaver, right, or Mr. Tumness or whatever. But then to look at that and then to call that sin, suddenly it kind of makes it weird, right? It kind of like that framing is that framing is what makes it weird. Like the surrounding discourse or the surrounding kind of monologue that he's delivering. And the sort of punchline here is like fairy tales are sin, essentially, right? Like, like what is sin? And then he gives you like a fairy tale scenario, like a fantastical scenario. It's almost like that is so surprising. And it's honestly, the content is very childish. Like it's what kids think about all the time, like talking to imaginary friends. There's almost this naivete in the examples that he gives, like very mundane and fantastic at the same time. But the fact that this is the punchline to like what sin is, it's almost like why haunted dolls are so scary, right? As a, as a, as a trope, right? It's something that is mundane, that is uh, supposed to be, Innocent, you know, playful, innocent, childlike. Right, very innocent, very playful. And play, actually play, is another one of those things that's very transgressive and, and doesn't pay heed to boundaries. So maybe there's something there as well. But to me, yeah. the impact there was sort of the contrast between essentially delivering this almost like Nietzsche and homily on sin. Yeah. Right. And then saying real sin is when your dog talks. Yeah. And there's something very unsettling about that juxtaposition. Yeah. Well, it makes me definitely rethink a lot of the movies I watched as a kid that were passed off as entertainment. I I didn't realize I was watching, you know, I was like basically being indoctrinated into a world of sin. (laughs) But I actually, but that being said, I did, I did know that like, remember, do you remember in like the late eighties, early nineties, there was like a big thing about like talking babies and talking dogs and cats and stuff like this. Like, look who's Mm -hmm. talking, look who's talking, you know, where they figured out they could manipulate film so that babies could, you know, talk in adult voices and stuff like that. Oh, I see. I yeah. did find that very disturbing. As yep, <laughs> it's so, unsettling. Yeah. One one thing that I think is is like kind of fortuitous is that um, this must have been easily like six seven years ago. I was on PTR, your old podcast, talking about Altizer, radical theologian, um, for the audience. 
And we were talking about his dialectical, like hyper, hyper dialectical theology. And one of your co-hosts, I can't remember who, asked the question, what does Altizer mean when he says that what we need is a coincidentia of good and evil? And I was like, I have no idea. Like, it's really unclear. Because, like, it's clear that his, his he isn't saying, like, you know, we need more murders in the world. That'll solve our problem. Something like, you know, then God will come or whatever it might be. And I couldn't figure it out. And part of me is thinking maybe this is what he means. That when you talk about what is the coincidentia of good and evil, it's this, it's this notion of sin as an act of transgression. That maybe what he is he's pointing to is not this idea of, like, Altizer's suggestion is not that we need more mundane sins in a moral sense, but what we need is this fundamental act of transgression, and that the fundamental act of transgression of the sinner in Machen sense, and the fundamental act of holiness or sanctity of the saint, that those ultimately converge, that both the sinner and the saint are those people who step outside of the nature of what it means to be human, and in some way tap into something bigger than themselves or beyond themselves that maybe they're not supposed to touch. Maybe it's kind of a, a third rail. Yeah, yeah, the third rail, I kind of intuitively here think maybe the category there is the absurd or something related to the absurd. Yep. And yeah. for, for me, I think that what's interesting is that it starts with he makes this statement and the guy's like, oh, you're talking about saints. And he says, no, 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 you've made this mistake of, of thinking right. the saint but not thinking the sinner. And yet I think maybe the radicalization of what is being proposed here is this idea that the distinction between the saint and the sinner ultimately dissolve when you talk about these sort of pure forms. Um, it does suggest I, that the talking dog is also a saint then. So there we go. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's all very puzzling. Um, and part of the problem is that I just had to relocate. Uh, no, it's all, it's all good. I mean, some stuff. I, I honestly, if a dog or a cat just started talking to me, I would be thrilled. <laughs> I would, because I'd be like, oh, the world is filled with magic and it's <laughs> anything is possible. I also kind of wonder, like, with how absurd the regular world is or feels <laughs> right now, I, I think it would almost feel uh, relieving to see a talking dog. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, of course. Of course that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, uh, in terms of like the coincidence of opposites and things like that, what I was trying to think of is like, what do good and evil have in common such that the coincidence of them would produce some kind of like, like what, like what is the synthesis, you know? Mm. And yeah, I don't have an answer. I have no I mean, idea. Altizer's confusing as hell. I mean, is it some sort of transcendence that is in mind here, right? So I'm thinking of the transcendence of the sorcerer, the transcendence of the saint. Oh, that's true. The the ecstasy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, now now that we're mentioning it, there it, it does kind of feel kind of almost like bataille, like a beyond good and evil, a an excess that uh, is fundamentally too much, that's ecstatic, that moves beyond, but is neither like is neither good nor evil, strictly speaking, would be how bataille or like the sort of Nietzschean way of characterizing it, but um. Which again, thinking of the coincidence, right? At the same time, you also have somebody like Meister Eckhart, this like hyper pious, literal monk, like Dominican monk, who also theorizes the idea that pushed to its extreme, you emerge into a world that is beyond good and evil. And so, you know, the 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 Bataillon sinner and the Eckhartian saint 
both kind of converge on on this notion of a radical ecstasis beyond good and evil. Yeah, it doesn't make for great content mysticism, <laughs> but I mean, I think ultimately that's where these where these things land a lot of times. I I have like so much more that I could talk about and want to talk about, but unfortunately, I do have to run soon. Okay, uh, but maybe we should maybe we should keep going on this sometime. Yeah, let's yeah. Um, let's pick it up in in one form or another sometime soon. Let's do a quick wrap up then. Um, where where should we go? This uh, episode, I mean, it's an interesting experiment, right? Like, yeah, putting three passages together, trying to distill the insights or concepts that might be in there, and then trying to see what kind of cocktail you can make out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I am having a little bit of trouble finding a a solid through line because these are essentially randomly selected like we didn't <laughs> we didn't uh plan ahead of time to coordinate what we were going to talk about um and, and, and yet there's so much overlap there are so right. many like weird linkages between these even you know stuff as minor as like you know the fact that the first two both used fishing metaphors um the fact that we have this sort of through line of esoteric because i think it's worth saying for the audience that it might seem like we were like okay everyone bring in a five minute clip about like esotericism or the occult or these sorts of things but we didn't we were just like bring in a clip full stop and the (laughs) fact that everything is kind of circling around this partially just kind of points to who we are as people and the shared interests that we have. Um, but I think also is there is something I think really interesting about uh, the way that these there are these sorts of linkages about thinking around around the esoteric and what does it mean to pursue other types of knowledges, whether, you know, that pursuit of knowledges uh, makes you the the sinner uh, whether that is the sort of dangerous net that will capture you uh, in the Georgiani, or whether it's the 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 lure, the bait that is going to produce other ideas, I think all of these are clips about how we pursue the sort of unexpected and the unknown, and how we respond when it appears. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to let that be the the final word. I mean, I I was never really sort of aiming at a synthesis, uh, and and not not to say that that was exactly, but um, yeah, I appreciate I appreciate that kind of like um juxtaposition that you just did there. I think that's um a good way to good way to end. Yeah, I so, think the only thing I would add is that in the spirit of David Lynch here, uh, I think we've caught a lot of fish. I think we got to let them. At least for me, I I need to let them uh, sit in the percolator for a while. And, um, you know, maybe next time I'm on, I can, uh, I'll have, I'll have more to say, but I I just think it's interesting to consider ideas in, in juxtaposition. It's, it's a true experiment. Yeah. So I might cut this out, but there's, um, are you familiar with the exquisite corpse method of the surrealists? Uh, I've I've heard the term, but I can't remember what, what, uh, what's the, it's, uh, it's basically like a, a method that the surrealist developed where a person would um, begin a, a piece or, or whether textual or visual, and they would just show maybe like just a small percentage of it to another person. And they would take that and run with it. And that this could go on indefinitely. So you could be between three people like we did here. Or there's been example. There's been cases where people have done this over the course of decades, and you know created these big, um, you know works. 
I don't know. I think I think it's just kind of an interesting method. I think maybe that's um, something to keep experimenting with. And and at the same time, those same people were at the time innovating like the collage. And I think the another way of framing this is as as a sort of um, uh, auditory collage uh, rather than visual collage. <laughs> I like that a lot. All right, guys. Well, uh, I'm gonna go. I'm sweating. I need to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good talking to you. All right, Have a too. good one. Bye. Nice to see you, Jake. All right. See you guys.